You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, listeners. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to episode 35 of Security Unlocked. Natalia, how are you? I'm doing well, as always, and welcome, everyone, to another show. It's probably quite redundant, me asking you how you are and you (laughs) asking me how you are, because that's not really a question that you really answer, honestly, is it? It's not like, oh, my right knee's packing it in a bit or I'm very hot. Yeah, I'm doing terrible right now, actually. (laughs) Everything's terrible. (laughs) Well, uh, our guest today is, is returning champ. Emily Hacker, this is her third uh, appearance on Security Unlocked, and she's returning to talk to us about a uh, new business email compromise campaign that she and her colleagues helped unearth, focusing on some sort of gift card scam. We've covered business email compromise before, or BEC, on the podcast. Uh, We had uh, Donald Keating join us uh, back in the early days of Security Unlocked on episode six. The campaign itself, not super sophisticated. As, as Emily sort of explains, but so much more sort of prevalent than I think a lot of us sort of realize. BEC was actually the number one reported source of financial loss to the FBI in 2020, like by an order of magnitude above sort of, you know, places, second place, third place, fourth place. You know, I think the losses were in the billions. This is what was reported to the FBI. So it's a big problem. And thankfully, we've got people like uh, Emily on it. Natalia, can you give us the TLDR on the on the campaign that Emily helps describe? Yeah, as you said, it's a, a BC gift card campaign. So the attackers used typo-squatted domains and socially engineered executives to request from employees that they purchase gift cards. And the request was very vague, like, I need you to do a task for me or let me know if you're available. And they used that authority to convince the employees to purchase the gift cards for them. And they then converted the gift cards into crypto at at scale to collect their payout. Yeah, and we actually discussed with Emily that that between the three of us, Natalia, myself and Emily, we actually didn't have a good answer for how... The mm-hmm. uh, these attackers are laundering these gift cards and, and converting them to crypto. So we're gonna we're gonna go and do some research, and we're gonna hopefully follow up on a, on a future episode to better understand that process. Awesome! And so with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. Welcome back to the Security Unlocked podcast, Emily Hacker. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm trying very hard not to melt. Here in uh, Seattle, we're recording this at the tail end of the heatwave apocalypse of late June 2021. Natalia, are you all in, I should have asked, have you melted or are you still in solid form? I'm in solid form, partially because I think Seattle stole our heat. I'm sitting in Los Angeles now. Ah, got it. Emily, thank you for joining us again. Hope you're also beating the heat you're here to talk about business email compromise, and you were one of the folks that co-authored a blog post from May 6th 
talking about a new campaign that was discovered utilizing gift card scams. First of all, welcome back. Thanks for being a return guest. Second of all, do I get credit or do I get (laughs) blame for the tweet (laughs) <laughs> that enabled you to... It's been to... so long, I was hoping you would have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Emily and I were going backwards forwards on email and I basically asked Emily, hey, Emily, who's like the expert at Microsoft on business email compromise? And Emily responded with, oh, yeah, <laughs> as in Emily is. And so I, I think I apologized profusely. If I didn't, let me do that now for not assuming that you were the subject matter expert. But that then birthed a very fun tweet that you put out into the Twitter sphere. Do you want to share that with the listeners or is this uncomfortable and we need to cut it from the interview? No, it's fine. You can share it with the listeners. I uh, <laughs> I truly was not upset. I don't know if you apologized or not because I didn't think it was a thing to apologize for because I didn't take your question as like, a, hey, Emily, can you like get out of the way and show me the real expert? Like, I did not take it that way at all. It was just like, I've been in this industry for five years and I have gotten so many emails of people being like, hey, who's the subject matter in X? And I'm always having to be like, oh, it's so-and-so, you know, or, oh yeah, I've talked to them at so-and-so. And for once I was like, oh my goodness, it's me. <laughs> like I'm finally a subject matter in something. It took a long time. So the tweet was was me being excited that I got to be the subject matter expert, not me being upset at you for asking who it was. <laughs> no, I, I took it in. It's, I did assume that it was excitement and not crankiness at me for not assuming that it would be you. But I was also excited because I saw the tweet because I follow you on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, that was me. That was me. And I got to use, I got to use the meme that's the, the, the weird side eye puppet, the side, side eye puppet. I don't know if that translates. There's this meme where it's like a w- weird sort of like H&R puff and stuff sort of reject puppet. And it's sort of like, looking sideways <gasps> to the to the yes. camera. Uh, Your response I've, literally made me laugh out loud, though, alone I've in my apartment. I've never been able so to use that, that meme in, like, its perfect context. <laughs> and I was like, this is it. <laughs> we just set that one up for a comedy home run, basically. Yes, yes, yes. And I think my dad liked the tweet, too, so I think I had it, so that was good. Um, he's like my True only success. follower. Um, well, on that note, so yeah, we're here to talk about business email compromise, which we've covered on the on the podcast before. You, as I said, uh, co-authored this post from May 6th. We'll have a, a broader conversation about BEC, but let's start with this post. Could you give us a summary? What was discussed in this uh, blog post back on, on May 6th? Yeah, so this blog post was about a specific type of business email compromise where the attackers are using lookalike domains and lookalike email addresses to send emails that are trying in this particular case to get the user to send them a gift card. And so this is not the type of BEC where a lot of people might be thinking of in terms of conducting wire transfer fraud or, you know, you read in the news like some company wired several million dollars to an attacker. That wasn't this, but this is still creating a financial impact and that the recipient is either going to be using their own personal funds or in some cases, company funds to buy gift cards, especially if the threat actor is pretending to be a supervisor and it's like, hey, you know, admin assistant, can you buy these gift cards for the team? They're probably going to use company funds at that point. So it's still something that we keep an eye out for. And it's actually these gift card scams are far and away the most common, I would say, type of BEC that I am seeing when I look for BEC type emails. It's like well over, I would say, 70% of the BEC emails that I see are trying to do this gift card scam because it's a little easier, I would say, for them to 
fly under the radar, maybe I, in terms of just like someone's less likely to report like, hey, why did you spend $30 on a gift card? Then like, hey, where did those like $6 billion go? So like in that case, this is probably a little easier for them to fly under the radar for the companies. But in terms of impact, if they send, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of these emails, the actors are still going to be making a decent chunk of change at the end of the day. In this particular instance, the attackers had registered a couple hundred lookalike domains that aligned with real companies, but were just a couple of letters or digits off, or were using a different TLD, or use like a number instead of a letter or something, something along the lines to where you can look at it and be like, oh, I can tell that the attacker is pretending to be this other real company, but they are actually creating their own. But what was interesting about this campaign that I found pretty <laughs> silly, honestly, was that Normally, when the attacker does that, one would expect them to impersonate the company that their domain is looking like, and they totally didn't in this case. So they registered all these domains that were lookalike domains, but then when they actually sent the emails, they were pretending to be different companies, and they would just change the display name of their email address to match whoever they were impersonating. So one of the examples in the blog, they're impersonating a guy named Steve, and Steve is a real executive at the company that they sent this email to. But the email address that they registered here was not Steve and the domain was not for the company that Steve works at. So they got a little bit, I don't know if they like got their wires crossed or if they just were using the same infrastructure that they were going to use for a different attack. But these domains were registered the day before this attack. So it definitely doesn't seem like opportunistic in which it doesn't seem like some actors were like, oh, hey, look, free domains. Let's send some emails. Like they were brand new and just used for strange purposes. Didn't they also fake data in the headers? Why would they be so careless about connecting the company to the language in the email body, but go through the trouble of editing the headers? That's a good question. They did edit the headers in one instance that I was able to see. Granted, I didn't see every single email in this attack because I just don't have that kind of data. And what they did was they spoofed one of the headers, which is an in reply to header, which makes it, which is the header that would let us know that it's a real reply. But I worked really closely with a lot of email teams and we were able to determine that it was indeed a fake reply. My only guess, honestly, guess as to why that happened is one of two things. One, the domain thing was like a a mess up, like it, they had better intentions and the domain thing went awry. Or number two, it's possible that this is multiple attackers conducting, if one guy was responsible for the emails with the messed up domains and a different person was responsible for the one that had the email header, like maybe the email header guy is just a little bit more savvy at his job of crime than the first guy. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like the idea of a sort of ragtag, I mean, I don't mean to make them <laughs> an attractive image, but, you know, a ragtag group of people here. And, like, you've got a very competent person who knows how to go and sort of spoof domain headers, and you have a less competent person who is... It's like Pinky and the Brain. Yeah, it is Pinky and the Brain. That's fantastic. I love the idea of Pinky and the Brain trying to conduct a multinational BEC (laughs) campaign as their way to try and take over the world. Can we back up a little bit? We jump straight into this, which is totally, you know, we asked you to do that. So, but let's go back to a little bit of basics. BEC stands for Business Email Compromise. It is distinct from 
I mean, do you say CEC for consumer email compromise? Like what's the opposite side of that coin? And then can you explain what BEC is for us and why we sort of think about it distinctly? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's a term for the non-business side of BEC other than just scam. At its basest form, what BEC is, is just a scam where the threat actors are just trying to trick people out of money or data. And so it doesn't involve any malware for the most part at the BEC stage of it. It doesn't involve any phishing for the most part at the BEC stage of it. Those things might exist earlier in the chain, if you will, for more sophisticated attacks, like an attacker might use a phishing campaign to get access before conducting the BEC, or an attacker might use like a rat on a machine to gain access to emails before the actual BEC. But the business email compromise email itself, for the most part, is just a scam. And what it is, is when an attacker will pretend to be somebody at a company and ask for money, data that can include, you know, like, W-2s, in which case that would still count as BEC. And when I say that they're pretending to be this company, there's a few different ways that that can happen. And so the most, in my opinion, sophisticated version of this, but honestly, the term sophisticated might be loaded and arguable there, is when the attacker actually uses a real account. So business email compromise the term might imply that sometimes we're actually compromising an email. And those are the ones where I think are what people are thinking of when they're thinking of these million billion dollar losses where the attacker gains access to an email account and basically replies as the real individual. Let's say that there is an email thread going on between accounts payable and a vendor and the attacker has compromised the, the vendor's email account Well, in the course of the conversation, they can reply to the email and say, hey, we just set up a new bank account. Can you change the information and actually wire the million dollars for this particular project to this bank account instead? And if the recipient of that email is not critical of that request, they might actually do that. And then the money is in the attacker's hands. And it's difficult to be critical of that request because it'll sometimes literally just be a reply to an ongoing email thread with someone you've probably been doing business with for a while. And nothing about that might stand out as strange other than them changing the account. It can be possible, but difficult to get it back in those cases. But those are definitely the ones that are, I would say, the most tricky to spot. More common, I would say, what we see is the attacker is not actually compromising an email, not necessarily gaining access to it, but using some means of pretending or spoofing or impersonating an email account that they don't actually have access to. And that might include registering lookalike domains, as in the case that we talked about in this blog, and that can be type of squatted domains or just lookalike domains where, for example, I always use this example, even though I doubt this domain is available, but instead of doing Microsoft.com, they might do Microsoft with a zero or like Microsoft using R-N-I-C-R-O-S-O-F-T.com. So it looks like an M at first glance, but it's actually not. Or they might do something like Microsoft-com.org or something, which that obviously would not be available, but you get the point, where they're just getting these domains that kind of look like the right one so that somebody at first glance will just look up and be like, oh yeah, that looks like Microsoft, this is the right person. They might also more commonly just register emails using free email services and either do one of two things, make the email specific to the person they're targeting. So let's say that an attacker was pretending to be me, they might register emilyhacker at gmail.com or more recently and maybe a little bit more targeted, they might register like emily.hacker.microsoft.com at gmail.com and then they'll send an email as me. And then on the, I would say, less sophisticated end of the spectrum, 
is when they are just creating an email address that's like bob at gmail.com. And then they'll use that email address for like tons of different targets, like different victims. And they'll either just change the display name to match someone at the company that they're targeting, or they might just change it to be like executive or like CEO or something, which like the least believable of the bunch, in my opinion, is when they're just reusing those free emails. So that's kind of the different ways that they can impersonate or pretend to be these companies. But I see all of those being used in various ways. But for sure, the most common is the free email service. And I mean, it makes sense because if you're going to register a domain name that costs money and it takes time and takes skill, same with compromising an email account, but it's quick and easy just to register a free email account. So, yeah. So just to sort of summarize here, so business email compromise is obviously very complex. There's lots of facets to it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, first of all, it's targeted at businesses as opposed to targeted individuals. In targeted individuals is just more simple scams. We can talk about those, but business email compromise targeted at businesses. Mm-hmm. And the end goal is probably to get some form of compromise in which could be in different ways, but some sort of compromise of a communication channel or a communication thread with that business to ultimately get some money out of them. Yep. So it's a social engineering scheme to get whatever their end goals are, usually money. Yeah. Got it. Like if I buy a gift card for a friend or a family for their birthday and I give that to them, the wording on the bottom says pretty clearly like not redeemable for cash. Like it's... So so what's the loophole they're taking advantage of here? Criminals kind of crime. Apparently (laughs) there are sites, you know, on the internet specifically for cashing out gift cards for cryptocurrency. Hmm. And so they get these gift cards specifically so that they can cash them out for cryptocurrency, which then is a lot, obviously, less traceable as opposed to just cash. So that is the appeal of gift cards. Easier to switch for, I guess, cryptocurrency in a much less traceable manner for the criminals in this regard. And they are probably, you know, you can sell them. Also, you could sell someone a gift card and be like, hey, I got a $50 iTunes gift card. Give me $50. You got an iTunes gift card. I don't know if iTunes is even still a thing. But like that is another means of it's just I think a way of like, especially the cryptocurrency one, it's just a way of distancing themselves one step from the actual payout that they end up with. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a a laundering tactic. Mm -hmm. It's just I'm trying to think of like someone's eventually trying to get cash out of this gift card. Mm -hmm. And instead of going into Target with 10,000 gift cards and spending them all and then turning right back around and going to the returns desk and saying like, I need to return these 10,000 bananas that I just bought. Mm-mm. I guess I'm just puzzled as to how at scale. Yeah. And I guess that's the key word here at scale, at criminal scale. How are they? What's the actual return? Are they getting, are they getting 50 cents on the dollar? Are they getting five cents on the dollar? Are they getting 95 cents on the dollar? Um, sounds like maybe you don't know how to answer that question, but I think it's a fascinating one. I'd love to learn more about it is a good question. I would imagine that the the sites where they exchange them for cryptocurrency are set up in a way where rather than one person ending up with all the gift cards to where that you have an issue like what you're talking about with like, hey, uh, can I casually return these 6 million gift cards? Like rather than that, they're it's more distributed, but there probably is a surcharge in terms of they're not getting a one-to-one, but it's, yeah. I would not imagine that it's very low or like I would not imagine that they're getting five cents on the dollar. I would imagine it's higher than that. Got it. But I don't know. So that's a good question. And we're talking about leveraging this cryptocurrency model to cash them out. So has there been an increase 
in these scams because they now have this ability to cash them out for crypto? Like, was that a driver? I'm not sure. I don't know how long the crypto cash out method has been available. Mm -hmm. I've only recently learned about it, but that's just because I don't spend, I guess I don't spend a lot of time dealing with that end of the scam. For the most part, my job is looking at the emails themselves. So the learning what they're doing once they get the gift cards was relatively new to me, but I don't think it's new to the criminals. So it's hard for me to answer that question, not knowing how long the the crypto cash out method has been available to them. But I will say that it does feel like in the last couple of years, gift card scams have just been either increasing or coming into light more, but I think increasing. Emily, what's new about this particular campaign that you discussed in the blog? It doesn't look like there's something very new in the approach here. This feels like it's a very minor tweak on techniques that have been employed for a while. Tell me what's what's new about this campaign. <laughs> um, so I would agree that this is not a revolutionary campaign. Okay. And I didn't, you know, choose to write this one in the blog necessarily because it's revolutionary, but rather because this is so pervasive that I felt like it was important for Microsoft's customers to be aware that this type of scam is so, I don't know what word, now we're both struggling with words. I want to say prolific, but suddenly the definition of that word seems like it doesn't fit in that sentence. No, yeah, prolific. That makes sense. Like this is, it sounds like what you're saying is this blog exists not because this campaign is very unique and some sort of cutting edge new technique. It exists because it's incredibly pervasive. Yes. And lots and lots of people and lots and lots of businesses are probably going to get targeted by it. Exactly. Uh, and we want to make sure everyone knows about it. And the difference, yes. And the the only real thing that I would say set this one apart from some of the other ones was the use of the lookalike domains. Like so many of the gift card scams that I see, so many of the gift card scams that I see are free email accounts, Gmail, AOL, Hotmail. But this one was using the lookalike domains and that kind of gave us a little bit more to talk about because we could look into when the domains were registered. I saw that they were registered the day, I think, one to two days before the attack commenced. And that also gave us a little bit more to talk about in terms of BEC in the blog, because this kind of combined a couple of different methods of BEC, right? It has the gift card scam, which we see just all the time, but it also had that kind of lookalike domain, which could help us talk about that angle of BEC. But I had been, Microsoft is is definitely starting to focus in on BEC. I don't know if starting to focus in, but increasing our focus on BEC. And so I think that a lot of the stuff that happens in BEC isn't new because it's so successful. There's really not much in the way of reason for the attackers to shift so dramatically their tactics. I mean, even with the more sophisticated attacks, such as the ones where they are compromising an account, those are still just like basic phishing emails, logging into an account, setting up forwarding rules. Like this is the stuff that we've been talking about with BEC for a long time. But I think Microsoft is talking about these more now because we are trying to get the word out, you know, about this being such a big problem and wanting to shift the focus more to BEC so that more people are talking about it and solving it. It seemed like there was A-B testing happening with the cyber criminals. They had occasionally a soft intro where someone would email and ask, like, are you available? And then when the target responded, they then tried to get money from that individual or they just immediately asked for money. Mm -hmm. Why the different tactics? Were they actually 
attempting to be strategic to test which version worked? Or was it just, like you said, different actors using different methods? I would guess it's different actors using different methods. Or another thing that it could be was that they don't want the emails to say the same thing every time, because then it would be really easy for someone like me to just identify them mm-hmm. in terms of looking in Mailflow for those specific keywords or whatever. If they switch them up a little bit, it makes it harder for me to find all the emails, right? Or anybody. So I think that could be a part of the case in terms of just sending the exact same email every time is going to make it really easy for me to be like, okay, well, here's all the emails. But I think there could also be something strategic to it as well. I just saw one just yesterday, actually, or what day is it? Tuesday? Yeah. So it must've been yesterday where the attacker did a real reply. So they sent the the soft opening, as you said, where it just says, are you available? And then they had sent a second one that asked that full question in terms of like, I'm really busy. I need you to help me. Can you call me or email me or something? Not call, obviously, because they didn't provide a phone number. Sometimes they do, but in this case, they didn't. And they had actually responded to their own email. So the attacker replied to their own email to kind of get that second push to the victim. The victim just reported the email to Microsoft, so they didn't fall for it. Good for them. But it does seem that there might be some strategy involved or desperation. I'm not (laughs) sure which one. (laughs) Fine line between the two. (laughs) I want to ask a question that I don't know if you can answer because I don't want to ask you to essentially, you know, jeopardize any operational security or sort of tradecraft here, but can you give us a little tidbit of a glimpse of your your job and, and how you sort of do this day to day? Are you going and registering new email accounts and, and intentionally putting them in dodgy places in hopes of being the recipient? Or are you just responding to emails that have been reported as phishing from customers? Are you doing other things? Like, again, I don't want to jeopardize any of your operational security or, you know, the processes that you use, but how do you find these? And how do you then sort of go and follow the threads and uncover these campaigns? Yeah, there's a few ways, I guess, that we look for these. We don't currently have any kind of like honey account set up or anything like that where we would be hoping to be targeted and find them this way. I know there are different entities within Microsoft who are who do different things, right? So my team is not the entity that would be doing that. So my team's job is more looking at what already exists. So we're looking at stuff that customers have reported And we're also looking at open source intelligence if anyone else has tweeted or released a blog or something about an ongoing BEC campaign. That might be something that then I can go look in our data and see if we've gotten. But the biggest way outside of those, those are the two, like I would say, smaller ways. The biggest way that we find these campaigns is we do technique tracking. So we have lots of different... We call them traps, basically, and they run over all mail flow and they look for certain either keywords or there's so many different things that they run on. Obviously, not just keywords. I'm just trying to be vague here, but like they run on a bunch of different things and they have different names. So if an email hits on a certain few items, that might tell us, hey, this one might be BEC. And then that email can be surfaced to me to look into. Unfortunately, BEC is very is a little bit more difficult to track just by the nature of it not containing phishing links or malware attachments or anything along those lines. So it is a little bit more keyword-based. And so a lot of times it's like looking at 10,000 emails and looking for the one that is bad when they all kind of use the same keywords. And of course, we don't just get to see every legitimate email because that would be like a crazy customer privacy concern. So we only get to really see certain emails that are suspected malicious by the customer, in which case 
it does help us a little bit because they're already surfacing the bad ones to us. But yeah, that's how we find these is just by looking for the ones that already seem malicious kind of and applying logic over them to see like, hmm, this one might be BEC or, you know, we do that not just for BEC, but like, hmm, this one seems like it might be this type of phishing or like, hmm, this one seems like it might be call or whatever, you know, these types of things that will surface all these different emails to us in a way that we can then go investigate them. So for the folks listening to this podcast, what do you want them to take away from this? What do you want them to know on the SecOps side, on the mm-hmm. on the SOC side? Like, is there any additional sort of what are some of the fundamentals and sort of basics of BEC hygiene? Is there anything else you want folks to be doing to help protect the users in their organizations? Yeah. So I would say not to just focus on monitoring what's going on in the endpoint because BEC activity is not going to have a lot, if anything, that's going to appear on the endpoint. So making sure that you're monitoring emails and looking for not just emails that contain malicious links or attachments, but also looking for emails that might contain BEC keywords or even better, if there's a way for you to monitor your organization's forwarding rules. If a user suddenly sets up a a slew of new forwarding rules from their email account, see if there's a way to turn that into a notification or an alert, I mean, to you in the SOC. That's a really key indicator that that might be BEC, not necessarily gift card scam, but BEC. Or see if there is a way to monitor or not monitor, but like if your organization has users reporting phishing mails, if you get one that's like, oh, this is just your basic low level credential phishing, don't just toss it aside and be like, well, that was just one person is really crappy voicemail fish. No one's going to actually fall for that. Actually look and see how many people got the email. See if anybody clicked force password resets on the people that clicked or if you can't tell who clicked on everybody because it really only takes one person to have clicked on that email and you not reset their password and now the attackers have access to your organization's email and they can be conducting these kind of wire transfer frauds. So like, and I know we're all overworked in this industry and I know that it can be difficult to try and focus on everything at once. And especially, you know, if you're being told like our focus is ransomware, we don't want to have ransomware. You're just constantly monitoring endpoints for suspicious activity. But it's important to try and make sure that you're not neglecting the stuff that only exists in email as well. Awesome. Those are great suggestions. And I'd be remiss not to note that some of those capabilities are available in Microsoft Defender for Office 365, like suspicious forwarding alerts or attack simulation training for user awareness. But thank you again for joining us, Emily. And we hope to have you back on the show many more times. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me again. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.